Hello, this is uh, the Voice for American Law Enforcement with your host, Randy Sutton. Thank you so much for joining me again today on another episode of the Voice for American Law Enforcement. If you're listening on America Out Loud or on iHeartRadio, I'm happy to have you uh, with me today. And if you're seeing this on, uh, on the uh, video podcast, happy to have you with me as well. So I'm Randy Sutton, retired police lieutenant with 34 years of police service. I retired from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. I'm the author of A Cop's Life and the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety, and also the founder of an organization called The Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. On this show, we talk about all things law enforcement, what's in the news, and the stories behind the headlines. So let's get right to it. I don't have a guest today because there's some very important things I want to talk about and I want to have the time in order to really go in depth. So there has been another police shooting of a white police officer involving a black suspect. This happened in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, a little over a week ago, actually about two weeks ago now. And it is causing um, a, uh, a, a very difficult set of circumstances for the citizens and for the police in Grand Rapids uh, right now. Uh, let's talk about what happened. There is a widely circulated video that has been released by, uh, the, um, by the police department, which shows the body cam footage as well as footage from a, a cell phone that was taken by a passenger in the car with, that was with uh, the suspect. So this happened uh, in Grand Rapids. Patrick uh, Loya is the uh, individual who was killed by the police. And let's talk about what we know about what truly happened in, that, in this case. The officer who made the car stop was just recently identified. In fact, uh, just today was that officer identified. Um, and he is uh, a, a police officer that's got about uh, six years experience with the Grand Rapids Police Department. Um, he made a, a vehicle stop on a vehicle that uh, Patrick Lua was driving. And the reason that he made the traffic stop was because the license plate did not match what was the, what was on the, the the license plate did not match the vehicle that uh, that it was uh, on, so the officer made the traffic stop. Perfectly legal stop, and when the officer approached, Laoa jumped out of the car. The officer told him to get back into the car, and the subject refused. Uh, he was then asked for his driver's license. Uh, he uh, did not have a driver's license with him. He, uh, enga he engaged in some uh, brief conversation that was clearly deceptive to the officer. And you could see it in the, in the uh, released video that he was not cooperative. He was not compliant. He was um, trying to, um, it appeared to try and deceive the officer saying he had a driver's license, but then he couldn't produce it. Then he asked, uh, had some conversation with somebody in the vehicle and was non-compliant. And then at the, uh, shortly after he attempted to 
um, escape from the officer. The officer um, was in a, in a, a fight for um, for over ninety seconds. Now that's going to be a significant point here in just a few in just a few minutes. Um, the officer tried to detain uh, and control Loyola and was unable to do that. Um, he actually got into a physical confrontation where the officer was simply trying to bring him into custody. Uh, the fight was on, and um, the uh, officer tried to de-escalate uh, using the verbal commands, that didn't work. He tried to utilize his taser. Now, this this is really a, a critical part of this conversation. The officer tried to deploy the taser, but within such close proximity, uh, the the taser he was not he was unable to uh, get a uh, an accurate um, uh, shot with the taser in order to for it to, for him to utilize it to take. Uh, Loa into custody. Now, they're now in a fight for the taser, and uh, the the taser deployed, that is, the the um, officer, and I don't know, and, and this is where the investigation is going to have to determine uh, whether the, um, the officer intentionally tried to use the the uh, taser or because of the um, the fight with the suspect, whether it happened accidentally, um, but that's that has not come to um, to the surface yet. But the 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 taser was deployed um, was excuse me fired twice. Now that's significant because generally speaking, there's only two shots in a taser uh, where the barbs, which are on a wire, can be deployed. Now. The, there is also a capability called what's called drive stun, and that's where the taser is actually used as a stun gun, which which is also uh, you know a, a very painful process. So during the fight for um, for the uh, for the taser, uh, the suspect actually had his hand on the taser. Now the officer was, was told him over and over again, get your hands off the taser. And there, this has literally now become a fight for his life as far as the officer goes. Because if the, if the police officer loses control of that taser, which can be used as a weapon against him, and uh, the, the question which will, which will arise, which the attorneys for Leo's family have already have already begun this this um, uh, criticism. Uh, if if the taser was was shot twice, it is no longer utilized with the prongs. That is a point that the attorneys are saying. Well, the officer should have known that it wasn't uh, a, a significant threat to him anymore. And of course, that's where the narrative um, that the attorneys are trying to put out there are that now they're saying that the officer um, murdered the, uh, the subject, uh, Loya. Now, during this fight, the, the officer um, was, was trying to get Loya into custody. Didn't, didn't happen. So now they're literally um, on the ground, and the officer at 
when when the subject would not release the the taser, you can see very um, graphically on the video that was released that he that he's trying to control uh, the subject on the ground with one hand. He removes his service pistol and he fires a shot point blank into the suspect's head, killing him. Now, instantly, this became another um, part of the narrative of the racist police gunning down an innocent black man. This is it became the news uh, that that the um, uh, the narrative uh, in, in, that came out immediately causing disturbances, causing protests, um, nothing happily like what we saw with with other uh, high-profile shootings, but still cries of injustice, cries of racism, cries of let's arrest this officer right now for murder. And this has um, now become a, uh, a major case in the United States that is um, that and, and the narrative that is being put out there is that this officer murdered this individual. Now, first of all, the um, the reality is that we see the videotape, but you don't know what the police officer was physically going through at the time. I can tell you this, that if you're in a fight, an out-and-out out fight like he was for, for almost two minutes, which is what this came down to, you are physically exhausted from the effort. Now, why is that significant? Because if, if the police officer is so exhausted that he knows that he can't fight on anymore, and, and the suspect has hold of a taser, which can be utilized as an offensive weapon against him. Or even if, if um, because of, of his physical exhaustion, he could lose the weapon uh, on his side, that is his firearm, and it could be utilized against him. Many, many police officers throughout um, the, the years have been in circumstances like this, where they have been physically exhausted during an altercation, had their weapon removed by the suspect and then murdered with that weapon. This has happened many, many times uh, in the in the last decade, and well, actually, for for years since policing um, has has actually existed. So, this is something that 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 should be part of the narrative. But when you see the media attention, that's somehow missing from the equation. Uh, the, the narrative that's being controlled is by um, the, uh, the family's lawyer, who is a, um, a, an individual who was capitalized for many, many years on race-baiting um, race um, uh, narratives which he gets a great deal of media attention from. This police officer has now been um, placed on administrative leave, as is the norm when they are involved in a, in a major use of force, including a shooting. That's not something that is a, um, a punishment, and yet it is being portrayed as that. 
and, and of course, that plays into the narrative as well. So this tragic shooting um, could have been and should have been curtailed at the very beginning of the of the uh, of the traffic stop. What does every single law enforcement involved shooting, virtually every single one, what's the common denominator? And the common denominator is simply this, resistance, failure to comply with a lawful order. Every single incident that we have seen has been involving that principle. And yet you rarely even hear that when you are listening to the narrative, of course, by the by the attorneys for the family, but also being put out there by the media, um, and this is this is the same situation here. The fact that the officer shot him in the head while on the ground is being portrayed as a cold-blooded murder, when in fact. The suspect in this um, wrote the story for how it ended. It, is, it was his decision not to comply with the officer. It was his decision to physically fight with the officer. It was his decision to try and wrest the taser away from the officer. All of this, the officer reacted to. That, and that, that's, that's a critical component. The officer was reacting to what the suspect did. And as a result, the suspect lost his life. Why isn't the media talking about that? Because it doesn't go along with the, the narrative that is often put out because of the, uh, the, the, the social issues of the day. The police officer is now having a life-altering experience. His career will never be the same. He is now facing cries for his termination, um, the public outcry for, um, for his prosecution. And in the, the realities of today, the prosecutor... The city, the city's uh, city government, are so often manipulated by public opinion and by political pressure that they will often r simply give up the officer as a sacrificial lamb, so to speak. And to do this with this officer, which um, we ha this is a wait and see kind of deal. Uh, at this point, um, would be a cruel act. Uh, but unfortunately, every police officer in America is looking at this and wondering, is this officer going to be facing the same type of persecution by prosecution that many other officers have had to go through? Now, I caution that no determination should be made about the improper or proper use of force until an investigation is conducted. And this investigation is being conducted by the Michigan State Police. 
um, an organization that is not um, affiliated with the Grand Rapids Police Department because many of these these shootings now are being investigated by outside agencies to um, uh, to forestall the appearance of some type of uh, improper investigation. So I caution that uh, the judgments should not be made. However, in the world of public opinion, many judgments have been made. And the judgments are that this police officer murdered um, this individual. And uh, I can tell you right now that, uh, that the nation's law enforcement community is watching with, with great interest and fear that another police officer is going to be served up for the uh, public consumption as a scapegoat. Uh, so I'm going to continue to monitor this. I will report back as more um, evidence comes out, and we will watch this uh, unfold. And let's hope that there is justice and not a witch hunt where, uh, where uh, a sacrificial lamb is offered up for uh, public opinion. So let's move on. Um, well, actually, let's take a little commercial break for a second because there's actually a correlation between what I'm going to talk about um, on, this, on this commercial break and what this officer is going through. So this officer's name has been released to the public. And there is absolutely no doubt from uh, past experience that uh, the records concerning where he lives and where he might be staying are going to be accessed by people who uh, don't have any good intentions. And so I want to tell you about an, a company called OfficerPrivacy.com. This is a company that uh, was started by a, a police officer who discovered that there were a tremendous amount of uh, documents available on the Internet that can lead to where a police officer's safety is diminished uh, because he, he can be found or she can be found uh, as far as where they live and other personal information. So what officerprivacy.com does is it makes it much more difficult to access that information, thereby providing um, an extra layer of security for that officer. So if you are a police officer um, or have been and you're concerned about this, which you should be, uh, I would urge you to go to officerprivacy.com uh, contact Pete James, who is the retired officer who started this company, and see about safeguarding your own uh, documentation that is available on the internet. It's officerprivacy.com. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on the precautions, but deep down, you still want to avoid getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray. Made in the USA, Cofix RX reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Now the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. Now we invite you, friends, to invest some of your time 
with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both in the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. There's a lot of headlines to talk about. Let's talk about Baltimore. Baltimore has had the, some of the worst leadership, both at the city level and police department level, of any police agency I've ever seen. You'll remember that uh, Marilyn Mosby, who was the state's attorney, that is the state's attorney, in Baltimore, um, came out as a activist district attorney, prosecutor, when Freddie Gray was found dead in, uh, in a police vehicle after a transport. Now, um, the, every officer that was involved in the arrest of Freddie Gray, who um, had been arrested for a felony crime, was placed in a prisoner transport and, um, and was, was heard uh, beating his own head against the interior of the, of the prisoner transport a wagon that he was in. The prosecutor, Meryl Mosby, came out and publicly flayed the the police officers that were involved in the arrest, all the way from the initial officer to the transporting officer, and arrested six police officers on on a, a, a watered down murder charge for the death of Freddie Gray. And when she did it, she came out as a social activist that was going to be using her office to bring justice. And every one of these, none of these officers were guilty of anything. Um, it was, it was an accident that was caused by Freddie Gray's own, own conduct. And then he somehow hit his head uh, against, against the wall. Th this is not a, that unusual a set of circumstances. Prisoners, do insane things and uh and what what resulted was every single one of these officers was found not guilty now but it it created riots and baltimore became a a firestorm uh of of rioting and and looting and burning and at the time the police were absolutely uh, told to stand down. Not only were they told to stand down, they were actually not issued helmets and safety equipment that would that would um, uh, give them more more safety when it came to to being hit by bottles and rocks and bricks, etc. And so many of these officers were left to be severely injured because of the ineptitude, the incompetence, and the political politicization of the police response to these riots. 
And the decision was made at the city level and the police level to just let the city burn. Give them a, uh, if I remember correctly, the mayor at the time said, um, allow them to, uh, to, to make their point and just stand down and do nothing. As a result, the city burned. Um, livelihoods were lost. Lives were lost. And police officers were severely injured. And, and that became... Um, now, there had already been plenty of mismanagement and misconduct at, at, in the police leadership as well as the city leadership. But now, over the years, this has become even more of a debacle. Um, in fact, the uh, Marilyn Mosby right now is under indictment for tax fraud or for, excuse me, mortgage fraud. So she's under indictment. The police chief, they've lost, uh, they they, they change police chiefs like most people change their, their underwear. Um, the, the, several of the mayors have gone to jail. Um, it is just, it is, it is absolute incompetence, ineptitude, and, and, and who suffers but the people of Baltimore. Meanwhile, the Baltimore Police Department is become, has become um, um, lost so many officers that they can't even do police work. And, and they don't do proactive police work anymore because they basically have been gutted and ordered not to. So what's happening is the people who live in Baltimore are facing more and more violent crime, more and more uh, uh, drug-induced crime, which, which is a, a, a major factor. And the police are are basically standing down because that's they're they're ordered to and they don't have the manpower to uh to safe to safely uh police the streets and so people that are screaming for the police to do their jobs and to be police are falling victim over and over again so you would think you would think that the baltimore police department when they are trying to improve would be so um, careful about who they hire in their upper ranks that this headline would not be seen. New Baltimore police fiscal chief fired after PD notices he is a person of interest in a murder case and on the gun offender list. Now, this came out of uh, the police tribune. The Baltimore Police Commissioner announced on Wednesday that the police department's new chief of fiscal services has been fired because it turned out the executive was a, quote, person of interest, unquote, in an ongoing murder investigation. Dana Hayes, 37, was hired by the Baltimore Police Department on April 11th. He was already listed on the Baltimore Gun Offenders Registry when he was hired. And his name had been on the list that track city residents who have been convicted of at least one gun charge since 2019. He was arrested on multiple gun charges in 2018. So now they have to, now they have to fire him. Well, could this incompetence get any worse in Baltimore? And yet, who's going to be held responsible for this? So once more, you have... You have the police officers on the Baltimore City Police Department being let down by their, 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 their leadership, both in the agency and at the city level. And once again, another 
embarrassment to the Baltimore Police Department. You would you would think that after all this time, there would be there would be some type of of adults in the room, if you will, that would um, that would actually be competent when it comes down to um, to choosing the leadership of the Baltimore Police Department. I guess not. So let's let's look at some other headlines. Um, this one really caught my eye. Wyoming court overturns conviction because trooper was speeding before stopping a drug trafficker. I had to really I had to really go over this one. Um, this is also from the Police Tribune. Wyoming's highest court overturned the conviction of a man busted in possession of 42 pounds of marijuana because the state trooper who stopped him was speeding. The arrest occurred in August 2018, while Wyoming Highway Patrol trooper was monitoring traffic from the median of Interstate 80 near Cheyenne. The Wyoming Supreme Court said in its ruling that uh, Joshua David Levinson, who was a passenger in a vehicle that passed by the trooper, and said that uh, the officer, in order to catch up to the vehicle, um, at, at points was exceeding 100 miles an hour. And the justice said in the ruling, the trooper should not have been driving more than 100 miles an hour to catch the suspect vehicle. And when he did catch up to the suspect vehicle, his investigation revealed that there was 42 pounds of marijuana in the car. Now, in, in normal times, that would be considered really good police work, right? You, you, you make a car stop. You do your, your investigation. You, you come up with, with a drug trafficker. Good job, officer. And now the uh, uh, lawyer, justices, who are, of course are lawyers, make the determination that, well, golly, that, that trooper shouldn't have been speeding. Let's forget the fact that this guy is a, is a, is a drug trafficker. Let's just what, worry about the, the speed that the trooper was going to catch up to him. I've never heard, I mean, I've heard some pretty absurd court decisions. This one uh, ranks right up there with, uh, you know, what's the motivation for this? What's the motivation behind um, a, a, the Supreme Court justices coming up with such an outrageous opinion? Could it be that the infection of anti-law enforcement um, rhetoric and narratives have now infected the, the the highest court in Wyoming, because this is not a common sense decision, folks. Um, this shows to me that they're making a point, and that point is, um, hey, police, we don't really want you policing, because we don't want um, cases coming before us that uh, we're actually going to put bad guys in, in, in jail. Um, so this is, you know, I, I can imagine being a cop in Wyoming right now, and they're, they're wondering, well, what's the next, what's the next ruling going to be when it comes down to, to uh, a negative ruling against law enforcement? This is a head-scratcher, folks. This is a head-scratcher. And you, you'll, you'll, you know, notice that, um, there is no accountability for judges. 
judges are are literally the um, they're a law unto themselves. Their decisions, uh, uh, except by an appellate court, um, can't be touched. Well, in the, in this because they are the highest court in the land in Wyoming, so there's no appeal process. So um, uh, this is going to be the way it is. And I, all I can say is that lawyer who got them off on this, he he earned his pay, but he must have he he fell in it when it came down to <laughs> to. Uh, having this court uh, make this ruling because uh, it, it's it's a it's absurd and there, you know the, the headlines are full of so many questionable actions by leadership and by institutions that are supposed to be concerned about public safety and yet in in their uh, dealings and in their um, rulings and in their decision making depending on where, they are on the food chain of of, uh, of the, the political uh, leadership. Common sense doesn't even seem to play a role anymore. So, you know, there's. I want to I want to talk about another another case. This is a headline, and this this is another this is another example of leadership that police leadership that I I just have to wonder about when police chiefs come out with statements like this police chief brags that officer de-escalated after being shot instead of returning fire okay so we're talking about out of laurel maryland now police release more details about the shooting of an officer on wednesday at the laurel emergency response team tried to serve warrants on a murder suspect Laurel uh, police chief told reporters that the shooting occurred as officers were attempting to serve a warrant and arrest um, and arrest warrants on an individual named Sims. Sims had been charged with first degree and second degree attempted murder, assault and gun charges on April 11th in a middle of the day shooting in Laurel. Uh, the chief said, we determined this was a broad daylight attack. We also determined the individual had little care of, or concern for the community, clearly. And as this is uh, this is a quote, as I mentioned, they fired numerous rounds. It was broad daylight. It was a day off of school. It was a highly trafficked area, and children and members of our community were walking and driving in the area. And this gave this that gave this person no concern. Okay, clearly. Now he said the uh, emergency response team used a, quote, breach and hold technique. Okay, this is, where, this is where double talk comes in. Breach and hold, okay? He said uh, that officers forced the door to Sims' residence open and held it there as they announced their presence. All right, why is this a, why is this a critical issue? One of the things that's been in the news frequently, especially after the shooting of Breonna Taylor in Kentucky, is uh, no-knock warrants. Now, what is a no-knock warrant? This is a, 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 a term and a phrase that is often misunderstood. When a law enforcement officer um, is conducting a service of a search warrant at a, at a residence, residences are considered uh, a bastion of, you know, of, you know it's, your, it's your kingdom, it's your castle. And so law enforcement has to be very, very cognizant when when um, 
making an entry into a person's home. You know, despite what the what the facts are, uh, there has to be facts that are that are placed before a judge for, for the issuance of a warrant in order to go into into a private home. And so these officers had a warrant in hand. They re got it from a judge. Now, apparently, they did not ask for a no-knock clause. What is a no-knock clause? That's where the police can reasonably suspect that, an that, that their lives are in more jeopardy when they make an entry after announcing themselves if that knowing that a suspect is armed because that okay you knock on the door and you say police what does that give the suspect the opportunity to do know that the police are coming in and go get a firearm and then be prepared to uh, to go into combat and that's why no knock warrants are so essential for the safety of police officers now either they didn't have a no knock warrant I don't know that or they decided not to use the no knock um, clause Although they did breach the door. Now, what does that mean? That means open the door. That means you breach it. You you gain entry into it. But they didn't enter the house then. So they, they breached the door. And then they announced, we're the police. Well, what, what happened? Exactly what you would expect happened. The suspect armed himself and opened fire on the police. And he shot an officer. Now, here's where... Now, this is something that, that we're working on information that is is uh, you know not not fully we're not fully informed about what actually happened, but we do know that the officers took fire numerous rounds. One officer was actually shot, and they didn't return fire. Well, and then and then eventually they they got the suspect into custody. But meanwhile, the, the cop is bleeding from a bullet wound, and he didn't return fire. My question is, why the hell not? If you're taking fire, if you are you are being shot at, the only reason not to return fire is if you have absolutely no target. Now, I don't know what target was presented here, but we sure as hell know that if you're being shot at, you have the right to, to return fire to save your own lives. And, and if a, when a police chief lauds an officer for de-escalating, which of course is the buzzword bingo of the day when it comes down to law enforcement, instead of returning fire and possibly saving their own, their own lives, I have a problem with that. Now, of course, I got it, once again, I have to I put a caveat onto this. I wasn't there. I don't know if there was no... If there was simply no way to get a, um, a target, but if the if you know if the officers um, uh, were taking numerous rounds, which apparently they were, in the, the 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 close proximity of that door, you would think that they would have had a target to uh, to fire back at. So when when officers don't use the um, the force needed to um, appropriately defend themselves, as we have seen time after time recently, um, I, I, I sense that there is a, a, um, something at play here that is unhealthy, and that is fear of persecution by prosecution. 
we have seen over and over and over again now police officers who are hesitant to use the proper amount of force, whether that force is physical force, um, uh, you know, you, utilizing uh, impact tools like a baton or, or a chemical spray like pepper spray, or physically fighting in order to, to uh, contain a suspect, or the use of deadly force at the appropriate time. We've seen, we've seen officers murdered who have failed to defend themselves appropriately and the question comes up, why not? Why didn't they? And we also have firsthand testimonial uh, reports that officers didn't act appropriately to defend themselves because they were afraid of being the next person on social media, being accused of excessive force, being accused of racism, being accused of, of uh, all kinds of um, you know, uh, uh, inappropriate behaviors when they were legally justified and should have defended themselves appropriately. So when I, when I read about a police chief bragging about de-escalation when an officer is under fire and doesn't return fire, that sends up a bunch of red flags to me. And, um, and, and we've seen other police chiefs do this where they will come out and, and, laud the the officer for not using the force that he should or she should have used when under attack and and this unfortunately this is really disturbing to me and 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 to other police officers around the country who who view this and shake their heads and go what would have happened if he had used the appropriate force would he've been served up um in the, in, in the ways that, that cops are being persecuted all the time. Um, now here's a, here's a sheriff I like, um, sheriff, this is, this is from an incident down in Florida, um, Santa Rosa County. This is from the Charlotte observer sheriff homeowners should shoot burglars to save taxpayers money. I gotta love this. And this is what sheriff Bob Johnson said. <clears throat> if somebody's breaking into your house, you're more than welcome to shoot at them. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I just love the fact that a sheriff is actually coming out and saying it. Homeowners in the Florida Panhandle are being encouraged by one sheriff to shoot burglars who enter their homes. The comments by Santa Rosa County Sheriff Bob Johnson came after deputies took into custody a, quote, frequent flyer, unquote, who was accused of breaking into several homes on Wednesday, April 20th. Brandon J. Harris, who Johnson said had been arrested 17 times, faces seven charges after his most recent arrest. Deputies set up a perimeter in the Pace neighborhood when multiple people called about a suspicious person. About 40 minutes after the first call went out, a homeowner shot at Harris, who continued to run through his, the neighborhood. The sheriff said Harris was caught when he jumped out of a window of a home's bedroom. And the homeowner shot at Harris uh, the, uh, when, when this incident took place. And the sheriff said, I guess they think they did something wrong, which they did not. Somebody's breaking into your house. You're more than welcome to shoot at them in Santa Rosa County. We prefer that you do, actually. That's a, that's a quote. 
The homeowner fired multiple shots, but Johnson said Harris came away with just bloody cuts from the fencing. Harris's charges include attempted burglary with assault, burglary, and resisting arrest. Floridians are allowed to use force to protect their home and in defense of their property. A person who is in a dwelling or residence in which the police, the person has a right to be in, has no duty to retreat and has the right to stand his or her ground and use or threaten to use the Florida statute, the deadly force, the Florida statute states. And uh, the sheriff goes on to say, come see us. We have a gun safety class we put on every Saturday. And if you take that, you'll shoot a lot better and hopefully save taxpayers money. I, how do you say, how do you criticize that? I, I just, I, I love it. So let me grab a sip here. Now, in a, uh, in a story out of California, which every show has at least one story out of California, and um, California sheriffs say state lawmakers are hurting cops' efforts to improve public safety. Now, we all know this to be factual, but once again, sheriffs, not chiefs, you'll notice, are... are uh, much more um, attuned to giving public statements about the realities that they're facing them. So this is out of Riverside County. This is from the Orange County Register. The sheriffs of Riverside, San Bernardino, and Los Angeles counties on Saturday hammered away at state lawmakers and other officials who they say have rejected measures that would have promoted public safety. The setting was the vast Hangar 4 at Chino Airport, where upwards of 700 people, almost all loudly supporting the sheriffs, heard Riverside County's Chad Bianco, San Bernardino County's Shannon uh, Dykus, and LA County's Alex Villanueva speak on an improvised stage with airplanes parked in the background. So the sheriffs were basically holding a town hall meeting, and 700 residents showed up for it. Nary a cat call was heard, nor were any critical questions read by the moderator, radio host Jennifer Horn, who said none were handed to her by the organizers from the L.A. County Sheriff's. Um, the sheriffs addressed a range of topics, including their refusal to enforce mask mandates, public outreach, fentanyl abuse, and what they consider small penalties for illegal marijuana grows that threaten public safety, and their efforts to issue more concealed weapons permits. Within those discussions, the sheriff um, many times referenced disappointment with state politicians and in Villanueva's case, his running battles with the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, the Los Angeles City Council, and the Metropolitan Transportation Authority Board. <laughs> this is what the sheriff said. I need a new board of supervisors. Metro and the 14, quote, woke members of its public safety committee, Villanueva said, do not allow deputies to arrest most troublemakers on the trains. Villanueva said, what we are missing is political will. We have the answers. And uh, uh, Dicus, Dicus and Bianco recalled testifying before State Assembly Public Safety Committee in March on a proposal to repeal Prop 47, a law that turned felonies into misdemeanors. Now, you've all heard, because it's been all over the media, um, about all these 
you know, these mass criminality events where stores are being looted literally during the business day by organized groups of individuals who go in there and steal. And they, they have taken many of these crimes and made them into misdemeanors instead of felonies. So these law officers know the score. They go to that, the, 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 the goofy uh, assembly and say, hey, look, you guys got to make the, the changes in the law. So here's what, uh, here's what the, the, they say. Supporters say the law has reduced the number of people in state prisons. Yeah, sure, because they, they're just making stuff that's illegal, not illegal anymore, or making it impossible to prosecute. Bianco um, and said committee members spent uh, most of the hearings scrolling through web pages on their phones instead of listening, and the proposal was rejected as soon as the sheriffs left. And uh, Bianco said he doesn't understand the motivation of the Public Safety Committee, who he said have rejected other proposals to increase prison time for convictions. Um, the disrespect across the board is unbelievable, said the sheriff. Um, and uh, uh, once again, you have the absolute abdication of the um, of the public trust or of the, of the <clears throat> excuse me of the uh, elected officials' um, roles and responsibilities. You get elected because you, you swear an oath to do the will of the people. And the will of the people includes safeguarding the people, creating uh, an environment of public safety. And yet, especially in California, we have seen this unbelievable um, um, shift in public policy over the years where there is no accountability for crime. And that's instead of instead of them waking up as the as crime surges across uh, not only the country, but especially in California, these California politicians are simply not interested. They're only interested in their own woke politics, not in the safety of the people. And when the and when the, the sheriffs, you know, try to do something about it, they are turned away. Well, I hope that elections do have consequences. In fact, finally, let, let, let me read some good news. The, the um, district attorney in San Francisco, Chesa Bowden, is, is literally one of the a George Soros-funded uh, activist prosecutor who was elected on the, uh, on the uh, platform of simply not prosecuting criminality. And, he, and he's, come, he's come through. But now the people feel that they have been duped. And there is now an election recall that is really picking up steam. So this is from the uh, SFGate newspaper. We finally have a Chesa Bowden recall election poll, and it's bad news for him. This made my day, quite honestly. We're less than three months away from the recall election of San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Bowden. And we finally have a poll of the race. The poll, according to Bay Area-based EMC research, found that 68% of voters support recalling Bowden in the June 7th election. It's worth pointing out that the poll conducted among 800 respondents was commissioned by recall organizers. However, EMC research has long been an active polling firm in the region and in July of last year provided polls showing that members of the San Francisco Board of Education 
were in imminent recall danger, and three members were eventually recalled in a landslide in February. So, 74% of respondents have an unfavorable opinion of Bowdoin. 61% believe he's responsible for the rising crime rates. So, um, finally, we are, we are maybe seeing the voters uh, revolting against individuals like Chesa Bowden. There's also a recall effort going on in, uh, in Los Angeles with George Gascon, who is as bad or worse than Chesa Bowden, is also facing a recall effort. This is exactly what needs to happen, my friends. You have to become an activist. You have to take a, a role in providing uh, safety for yourselves, for your families, and for your fellow citizens. And sometimes that role is is getting involved in the in the political environment, um, much as the people that are that are involved in this recall effort have done. So um, that's it for the news. Uh, at the end of of each of my uh, segments. My, my shows, excuse me, um, there's a segment called End of Watch. This is where we honor the lives of the officers who lost their lives in the line of duty the previous week. And unfortunately, I have a couple names to read. Deputy Sheriff James Jerry Critchlow of the Ohio County Sheriff's Office in Kentucky. Deputy Sheriff Jerry Critchlow died five days after suffering a heart attack while directing traffic in front of the Ohio County High School. He drove himself to a local medical facility, <clears throat> excuse me, after experiencing symptoms be being, before being flown to Kentucky Medical Center, where his condition worsened and he passed away. Deputy Critchlow had served the Ohio County Sheriff's Office for 13 years. He was assigned to, as a school resource officer. He previously served with Kentucky State Police for 30 years. He's survived by his wife, daughters, granddaughters, mother, and siblings. Deputy Sheriff James Jerry Critchlow, Ohio County Sheriff's Office, Kentucky. End of watch, Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. And the second officer is Police Officer Andrew Barr of the Casey Police Department in South Carolina. Police Officer uh, Drew Barr um, was shot and killed as he and other officers responded to a domestic disturbance call at a home on Rossmore Drive at about 2.45 a.m. The officers encountered a man in the front yard who opened fire on them, fatally wounding Officer Barr. The man then barricaded himself inside of the home until committing suicide seven hours later. Officer Barr had served with the KC Police Department for six years, was assigned to the K-9 Division. He also served as a captain with the Volunteer Fire Department. Officer Barr had previously been shot and wounded in the line of duty after being ambushed following a vehicle pursuit of a stolen car in May on May 27, 2017. So, uh, police officer Andrew Barr, Casey Police Department, South Carolina. End of watch, Sunday, April 24, 2022. Each of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty, protecting the people of their community. In fact, um, um, this year, 619, 619 fallen law enforcement officers will be honored during the 34th Annual Candlelight Vigil. Uh, of the officers being honored this year, 472 uh, lost their lives during 2021. The largest number of officers ever added to the memorial in a single year. So um, in May, May uh, 12th through the uh, 16th is National Police Week. And this is a time when, when we honor our law enforcement officers who gave the ultimate sacrifice in the line of duty. Now, 
if you want to help, if you want to, if you care about your law enforcement and you want to help, I urge you to go to thewoundedblue.org. That's thewoundedblue.org. It's a nationwide charitable organization. Uh, uh, and I founded it um, three years ago. We've helped more than 12,000 police officers. We are the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled officers. We're saving lives. You can play a role um, by helping to support this organization. You can play a, uh, uh, the role of hero for these men and women. So I urge you to go to the website, thewoundedblue.org, hit that donate button, and donate whatever you can, five bucks, 10 bucks, $10,000, whatever you can do. And if you want to know more about the organization, please check out our website and also our documentary film on Amazon called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. I'm your host, Randy Sutton. Thank you so much for joining me here. If you want to contact me, you can contact me at randy at thewoundedblue.org. Visit me on Facebook. Thanks. One, eleven, one, ten.